So as I was praying about it, I'm going to teach a message I taught a couple of years ago at the pastor's conference in Hawaii. It's in Acts chapter 20. So turn your Bible to Acts chapter 20. And I think it's appropriate that you should understand what a pastor's heart should be. Amen. And it may be a message more for me than for any of you, but it also, my prayer would be that you can hold all the pastors in this church accountable to this, but it also, it should be the heart of a pastor, but it really should be the heart of every believer. Amen? And so we're going to take a look at that tonight in Acts 20, but let's pray and we'll dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. You are a great and an awesome God. And we thank you, Lord, that we're two more gathered in your name. There you are in the midst of us. And so, Lord, you're the guest of honor. You're the reason we live and move and breathe. And I thank you for everyone who's here. I thank you for those that are watching this on live stream or may watch it later on a podcast. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name again that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Give us ears to hear. May man decrease, your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to say hi to one of my coworkers, Anna. Hi, Anna. So Anna texted me this week and said, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time. I said, really? And she said, yeah, and I think I'm going to start going to Calvary Chapel in South Bay. I said, praise the Lord. And then she texted me today and just said, I'm glad you're, I'm going to, we're going to miss you. I'm glad you're done with your job, but you keep doing what you're called to do. So I appreciate that. That was very nice. So God bless you, Anna. So now you just have to see me on this screen instead of the Zoom meetings we have on Monday mornings, right? All right, Acts chapter 20. So let's, let me give you some background quickly, and then we'll get into the text. I want to look, so this is the Apostle Paul who's coming to the end of his life. And as he's coming to the end of his life, he has divine appointments along the way. And we're going to look at some divine appointments that he has. And at this point, his face is set like flint toward Jerusalem, and he's gathered gifts from a lot of the churches to bring to the church in Jerusalem that is suffering great persecution. And because of the persecution, they're also suffering, in many cases, starvation, hunger. Some of them had lost their places to live. So Paul is headed back toward Jerusalem, but along the way, he's going to have some divine appointments. And one of my life's verses is in this text tonight, and we'll be looking at that. So if you ever outline grab it, I tell the message of pastor's heart, Lessons learned from the life of the Apostle Paul. And again, it's not just for pastors. It should be for all of us. This really is the minimum qualification for a pastor, though. This is what we should look for in someone who's serving God's people. But it should be the heart of every believer. First of all, a concerned heart. Someone who's focused on strengthening and encouraging the saints and ministering to the physical needs of the church. Not only a concerned heart, would they have a concern for other people, but a compassionate heart preaching to the masses and caring for the individual. As believers, we should look for divine appointments every single day and an opportunity to tell people and share with people the hope that lies within us. And it shouldn't just be if there's a big crowd or if there's just an individual. We should be willing and open and looking for opportunities to share our faith anywhere and any time. So not only a concerned heart and a compassionate heart, but a Christ-centered heart. None of us will be effective for the kingdom of God if we don't have intimate fellowship with the Lord. Amen? If I'm not being ministered to by the Lord, I can't minister to others for the Lord. I can't share with you that which is not part of who, who Christ has made me. Amen? So when, you, when you're walking in intimate fellowship with the Lord, you're going to be contagious. You're going to have an impact on the people around you. If Jesus is your best friend, you're going to love to introduce people to him. 
You're going to love to talk about him. You're going to love to worship him. So intimate time with the Lord is the priority of life. Uh, if you're not, there is no excuse not to be in God's word every single day. Amen. amen? I'm glad somebody said amen. <laughs> Thanks, Alberto. The reality is that, that as believers, I get it. We're all busy. I get it. You know, for the last, I was just telling, uh, uh, I was talking to my wife that, I don't know, we'll see if it happens, but, it might, but for the first time in my life, I have a day off. Because for 35 years, I've never had a day off. I have, a, I have uh, vacations where I get time off, but, you know, Monday through Friday, I work a full-time job. All day Saturday, studying for Sunday. Sunday, we do church, you know, and then Sunday evening, you know, and then the next day, you get up and do it again. And it's okay. It's a get-to, not a have-to. I've been blessed to do it, but I, I can't even imagine having free time. So when people would come to me and say, well, you don't understand. Well, no, yes, I do. Because <laughs> I know when I, you come on Thursday night, I've been at work all day, too. And I know what it's like to have, sometimes I had, to, I had to leave my house the other day at four o'clock in the morning to get to an appointment at 5.30, an hour and a half away. So I get it. But here's the reality. We'll get up for other stuff. We should be getting up for Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? Making time for the Lord. Guys, if you can't do it early in the morning because of your work schedule, keep your Bible in the car and grab it at lunchtime. You know, just make, make God a priority and a passion of your life. Where, if you're married to Jesus, you should act like it. Amen. Also, a Christ-centered heart, again, ministering to the Lord that we might minister for the Lord. And then thirdly, or fourthly, excuse me, we'll see how many of these we get through, but a pastor's heart. First, a heart to disciple others. All of us are called to make disciples. I ask people this question all the time. Who are you discipling and who's discipling you? Whose life are you pouring into and who do you have pouring into your life? And we all should have that. And here's the sad part. There are Christians that will live their entire life and disciple no one. There are Christians that will live their entire life and never lead anyone to the Lord. Now, again, we don't save people, but I believe that God gives us opportunities if we make ourselves available to share the truth with them, and then God saves them. Can I get an amen to that? So when you make yourself available, when you say, here I am, Lord, send me and use me, he will use you. So hard to disciple others. Hard to lead by example. You know, we should be an example that others can follow. Not that we're perfect or sinless. We're certainly not that. And we're all sinners saved by grace, and we have nothing to be... And if there's any good in us, we know it's all because of Him, and He gets all the glory. Amen? But we should live in such a way that people go, why do you have joy when no one else does? Why, why, why do you know, when everything's going haywire at work, why do you still have peace? Why is it when your son dies, you still have a passion and a love for the Lord and a love for people? Guys, it's only possible because of Jesus, amen? And as believers, the world is watching you. Your unsaved neighbors are watching you. Your, you know, the, your, your coworkers who don't know the Lord, your unsaved family members are watching to see how you're going to respond in the trials and difficulties of this life. God's called us to be a Christ-like example to show other people the love of the Lord. Our motive for ministry should be serving the Lord. The reason we do ministry is for God's glory, not ours. Anytime you see worldwide ministry of with some guy's name after it, run from the building like it's on fire. Amen? Because there's only one celebrity in Christianity. His name's Jesus Christ. And the reason that we do ministry is because we serve. our motive for ministry is to serve the Lord. By serving you, I'm serving the Lord. By serving me, you're serving the Lord. Amen? Then we see 
that a pastor's heart should be a humble heart. The manner of ministry should be serving with humility. Again, you'll, you'll see arrogance in people doing ministry, and there's nothing more nauseating than to see a prideful person as if you had anything to do with it. Amen? You can see it with worship. You can see it uh, in teaching. You can see it in even in sharing your faith with somebody. We can get arrogant and self-righteous. And you know what? We should be humble. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Amen? Then we have a heart for the lost. Do you care that people are going to hell? You know, it's easy to say, yes, I do. But if you really care, it should show. Right? You know why we don't share our faith? Because we're more afraid of what people will say about us than we're worried about where they're going to spend eternity. Amen? Because if we really are burdened for people, if somebody's in a car and, it's, and they don't want to get out and it's on fire, I'm dragging them out against their will. Amen? And the reality is we got people going to hell without Jesus, and we should do everything we can to minister to them. Not only a heart for the lost, but a heart led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an essence. The Holy Spirit is not, you know, a mist in the sky. The Holy Spirit is God. Amen? And the Holy Spirit, when you're born again, comes to live inside of you. And the more that He has of you, the less room there is for you. Amen? And so we, we want to decrease that the Spirit would increase and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and be led by the Spirit. I was so excited about chapter 18. I can't wait to teach it in a couple of weeks. I got to wait two weeks because next week's Good Friday. But here's the reality. I love the text because there's such a clear picture in there of someone being led by the Holy Spirit. And I just love the picture, and we'll see it in two weeks. And then a heart focused on eternity. The Bible says, one of my many favorite Bible verses, Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. We had another mass shooting on a Christian school campus, and a pastor's nine-year-old daughter died, and five other people died, and then... Everybody's worried about the person who killed them instead of the people that got killed. We live in such a crazy world, amen? But here's the good news. Heaven's better, amen? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when you have an eternal perspective, it changes the way you look at trials. It changes the way you look at other people. It changes the way you live your life when you have, your fo- have a heart focused on eternity. A heart for God's word. Okay, obviously, if you're a pastor, you better have a heart for God's word. Here's the sad part. There's a lot of pastors who don't have a heart for God's word. They teach books about the Bible, and they should be teaching books in the Bible. Amen? They're teaching pop psychology and seven steps to financial freedom and three ways to overcome your anger, and Beaver doesn't live anymore in the series, and the roller coaster ride of life. Stop it and teach the Bible. Amen? frustrates me to know it. This is where your pastor gets a little wound up. Wound up. I was at a pastor's conference this was a bunch of years ago. We're all sitting in a circle. Somebody paid for all the pastors in Santa Cruz to go to this conference. And it wasn't a conference, really. We just, they, they paid for this conference ground for all, all to stay there for three days. And we all just showed up and we're hanging out. And they went around the circle and they were asking, tell us where you pastor, what your church's name is. Tell us something exciting that happened to your church in the last 12 months. And tell us what you're teaching on Sundays right now. And I sat there and my head was about to explode because they were like, oh, the best thing that happened is we got new chairs for the cafeteria. <laughs> and right now we're teaching a series on finances that we got off the internet. And they go all around. The- Nobody was teaching the Bible. I'm the 28th guy. And they're like, what do you teach? And I said, well, the best thing that happened is we baptized 175 people this year. People are getting saved. God's being glorified. Lives are being changed. And I'm in Leviticus and Luke. And they're like, well, what do you, how do you teach that? 
They all went to seminary. I was the only one that hadn't been to seminary. That's why my dad called it cemetery. I mean, we go to die there sometimes, right? But the whole point is you better look. Guys, if you don't love this book, you don't know the author. Amen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by. This is it, right? And what we went him with is what we went him to. And, and a pastor out of a heart for the word, but so should every Christian. Almighty God wrote you a love letter. He wrote it down and he hand delivered it to you. Amen? And you have it. And the Holy Spirit helps you understand it. And you know what? The, the enemy wants to do everything he can to keep you from opening it. So I'm gonna, you're here on Thursday nights. So I'm preaching to the choir, but we need to have more of a heart for God's word. Amen? And then a shepherd's heart, finally, a heart's for God's people. To, a pastor's calling is to protect the church from dangers from the outside and dangers from the inside. And so that's what a pastor's called to do. But as believers... We should, be, we should have that same heart. So let's begin there looking at a pastor's heart. Lessons learned from the life of the Apostle Paul. First of all, beginning with a concerned heart. A concerned heart. Again, the last time I taught this was at the pastor's conference in Hawaii. And uh, my son Mark was there and he laughed all the way through it. Beautiful thing. All right. It says, after the uproar... Had ceased. So in chapter 19, Paul has been in Ephesus, where he pastored a church for about three years. And there was an uproar because people were getting upset because his preaching the gospel was destroying one of their main industries, which was making idols of the goddess Diana. And they had this huge temple to the goddess Diana, and they would make little Diana gods, and people would buy all these idols. Well, then people started getting saved and started burning the idols. So then the guys who made the idols were mad that the idols were getting burnt and that the temple worship wasn't what it used to be. And so they had this big riot and they were, what were they shouting? Who remembers? Great is what? Who knows? Great is the goddess Diana. And they were screaming at the top of their lungs for hours. And they wanted to kill Paul to silence him. Now, the one thing about Paul, praise God for this brother. I, I, I want to have a taco with him in heaven because I know he's going to be there and so are tacos, right? So, but, but everywhere that brother went, there was a revival or a riot and sometimes both. Amen. And as believers, when we enter into a place that is godless, just the Holy Spirit, when, wherever you go, the Holy Spirit goes with you. So when you walk into a dark place, it brings a light. Amen. And so they, they basically, now he did not leave because he was afraid. We, all, we know throughout scripture, Paul did not have fear of heaven because he'd seen heaven and he knew heaven was way better. Amen. And so he, was, he didn't leave for that reason, but God left him to lead. It says, after the uproar, up, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called his disciples to himself, embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. So he didn't leave during the uproar out of fear. But the Holy Spirit was leading him, again, heading towards Jerusalem. His heart was to get there by Passover. It's not going to happen. But that was his heart, to be able to minister to the Christians in Jerusalem who were going through a difficult time. And so Paul picks up his stuff. Now, I do love this. So after three years, Paul heads towards Jerusalem, again, wanting to make at least one more visit to the church the Lord helped him start along the way. So as he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be visiting these churches he planted. So Paul was a church planter, 
And then he would spend, he spent three whole years in Ephesus, so he'd pastor these churches for a while, and then he would turn them over and he would leave. At this point, he wants to go and visit these other churches on his way back to Jerusalem. Notice he embraced them. I love that because I'm a hugging pastor, amen? And you know what? I hug you because I believe if Jesus was here on Sunday, he would hug you, amen? The Bible says, they shall know us by the love we have one for another, And I just, you know, the Bible says to greet each other with a holy hug, holy kiss, right? And so this is what the body of Christ does. And it makes us different than the world. It's so standoffish. And I have people telling me, well, I'm not feeling well. I'm hugging you anyway. I don't care. Can I get an amen to that? I don't care. I have COVID. So what? I'm hugging you anyway. Amen? I don't know if you guys knew this, but when I was in India one time, there was a a leper colony, and there was a lady out front that was weeping, and, and I was talking to her, and she said no one had touched her in 10 years, and I gave her a hug, and, and my interpreter lost his mind and said, I'm going to be in trouble when I find out that I got a Calvary Chapel pastor leprosy, right? But God's in control, amen? Some of you are going, I don't think I'm hugging Dave anymore, but here's her. <laughs> it was 15 years ago. We're good, amen? But the point is that they shall know us by the love we have one for another, Amen? And here's Paul, he's leaving, and he's embracing these guys. They're in ministry together. You've heard me say it, blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit's thicker than blood. And when we have Jesus in common, we're family. I love you guys, and I mean that with all my heart. I love you guys. I love you guys. I love you guys. I love you guys. You know why? Because the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit, and we have Jesus in common. We love each other. Amen? This is more, this isn't the Kiwanis Club. We're not, we're just a bunch of people in a room, right? We're brothers and sisters in Christ who've all been born again. So for Paul, it wasn't easy to leave those that he loved. But sometimes that's what the Lord calls you to do. You know, I've had family members move away because God's called them to start ministries. It's not easy. But when they're doing what God's called them to do, that's what they need to do. So he didn't leave because of the uproar, but because of the Holy Spirit drawing him to Jerusalem. And doing God's will isn't always easy. Leaving behind people you love isn't easy. But sometimes it's what God calls you to do. So his pastoral concern was for the churches he had planted earlier. And notice it says here, to go to Macedonia. Macedonia is part of Greece, and it's divided in four parts at the death of Alexander the Great into Greece, Macedonia, Syria, and Egypt. And he wanted to go and encourage and strengthen the saints so they might stand true to the Lord and also to continue to collect an offering to take to the church in Jerusalem who was suffering and hurting. And this is what the body of Christ should do. Because if we have an abundance, we should minister to those who lack. Amen? And even as churches, we should be doing that. Verse 2. Now, when he had gone over the region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. So the concerned pastor's heart caused Paul to go back and encourage and strengthen his brothers, the other sheep, and to encourage them in the faith. I'll tell you what, I get encouraged every time I meet another believer. Amen? Yesterday, I met a a young girl who texted our church and said, hey, I'm moving to the area, and I'm looking for a church. And she said, "I'd, I'd love to sit down and talk to you. And I said, great. I texted her right back. And so I went and met with her yesterday, and I brought Sarah from the college group. And I'm talking to this girl for a minute and a half. And she loves Jesus. And we're talking. I'm like, I love you already. Amen? Why? Because when you have Jesus in common, you have everything in common. Amen? She's going to be here on Sunday. Pray for her. Her name's Erica, sweetheart. 
I'm, I'm, and I just love, I just, again, you meet people in the line at Disneyland, you meet people in the line at the grocery store, and when you find out you have Jesus in common, there's just something about it. Can I get an amen to that? It's just unique. It's like, you know, we're, bro- we're family because we have Jesus in common. And so his heart was to go back and encourage those. And at the same time, again, he's collecting something to minister to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are struggling with the famine. So he's not only zealous for the, for the gospel, but he was a man who had a love for people. And I believe that as, as Christians, we should have a supernatural love for people, right? Preach the word, love the people, right? Love God, love people. If we love God, we're going to love people. Amen? I've had people say this to me. I've shared this before. One guy said, you know, I really feel called to ministry. I just don't like people. I really feel called to be a shepherd. I just hate sheep. It's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? He, he wanted to get up and teach and then, you know, run out the back door and never have to talk to anybody. And I said, bro, you don't have a pastor's heart and you will never be a pastor here with that heart. This is back in Santa Cruz. So then he says there in verse three, he stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Paul ends up staying there for three months, and it seems like a delay. But here's the good news. While he was there for three months, he wrote the book of Romans. So praise the Lord for that. Amen? While he was there, he also wrote uh, to the Corinthian church, which was a very simple city. So here God has him, and it seems like a delay. And guys, I want you to know that no suffering and no time is wasted, that everything that God is doing, a lot of it is beyond our understanding. When I was talking to those two young women yesterday, Sarah told me something I'd never heard before. She called, she called it God dots. She said, this is a God dot. I go, what's a God dot? She said, well, I heard this term, and, and I love Sarah. She's been saved eight months, and she's on fire for God. I mean, she got saved real good. Can I get an amen to that? I love when people get saved real good. Like, they're really excited about it. But what she said, God dots, she's like, you know, it's like this thing that happens, and you don't see how it connects to something else until later, then all the dots connect when you get down the line. I'm like, she goes, this is a God dot. And I go, okay, it's a God dot. Well, we'll see what it is. But it's, I love that. I'm going to start, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing that. I'm using that. Fits in your gun, shoot it. But here's the reality. This is a God dot for Paul. He gets, he stops. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's stuck there for three months. But while he's there, he writes the book of Romans. God's using him. Guys, sometimes we're so anticipating the thing that's next that we're missing out on what God wants to do right where we are. Well, when I get to this, then I'll, and when I'm, and then, and then, I used to say this a lot when I was, I was a young guy in ministry. I, I was talking about when I planted a church, and I'd always say, well, when I'm in ministry, I will. When I'm in ministry, I will. And there was an older guy in our church, and he took me out to lunch one day, and he goes, I don't want everyone to hear you say that again. I go, why? He goes, what do you do on Tuesday nights? I go, well, I teach in the prison. He goes, what do you do on Wednesday nights? Well, I teach the men's Bible study. What do you do on Thursday nights? Well, I teach the youth group. What do you do on Saturday mornings? Well, I have a, a men's discipleship group. He goes, what do you mean when you're in the ministry? What do you think you're doing? And the reality is we're all in the ministry, amen? Wherever you are, whatever gifts you have, however you're using them, you are in the ministry, and we need to recognize what a gift and what a blessing that is that God chooses. You could just be the salt and light at work. The salt and light in your neighborhood, the spiritual leader in your home. Amen? And God has called and gifted us all, and God has a plan for our lives. Notice it says, when the Jews plotted against him. 
Once again, Paul had to change his plans because the, the, the Jewish people had plotted to kill him at sea. And Paul, walking in obedience, a life bearing much fruit, faces heavy persecution. So this is a fallacy that people have. If I follow God and I obey him, my life is going to be smooth sailing. The reality is, everybody in the Bible used mightily suffered greatly. Amen? You've heard me repeat that. There's nobody in the Bible used mightily that didn't go through times of suffering. So it says in James, to count all joy when you fall into various trials, not if. And so people say, I want to be used mightily. Then be prepared to suffer greatly. And the reality is that Paul was being persecuted because he was obeying God. Satan doesn't tend to spend much time on the people who are already headed to hell with reckless abandon and doing nothing for the kingdom of God. His resources are limited, so who does he want to go after? People that are serving the Lord, being faithful, and are living fruitful lives. Amen? Now, we don't have to be afraid of him because our God's greater. God's not giving us a spirit of fear, and he's a defeated foe. And uh, I used to say this, and I still hold by it. I hope he knows my name. I don't think Satan knows everyone's name. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not. He's a fallen angel, okay? Now, again, he can deceive you, and he knows where your frailties are and those kinds of things. But again, greater is he that is in us, and we don't have to be afraid of him. But Paul was being obedient and facing persecutions. They wanted to silence Paul. Why did they want to silence Paul? Because he wouldn't shut up. Because all he did was talk about Jesus everywhere he went. All he did was preach the gospel unashamedly. They're like, we got to shut that guy up. And guess what? He was indestructible until God was through with him. Because at this point, he was already stoned to death in Lystra. And God raised him from the dead. And he went right back in Lystra and preached the gospel because he had seen heaven. You couldn't threaten that. You know, there's nothing more uh, faithful than someone who does, has no fear of death. Amen? The two things the world fears the most is death and public speaking. And I'm like, praise the Lord, because I don't fear either one of them, amen? That's a good thing, right? I'm more afraid of broccoli than I am death, right? So the reality is that, that Paul has this passion for the things of God. He's being used mildly by the Lord, so he's facing opposition. And sometimes as Christians, we'll get mad at God when we face opposition, when the Bible tells us when we stand for God, we will face opposition. He's already told you it's coming. Amen? So don't be blown away when it happens. God's already promised that it will. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have what? I've overcome the world. We don't have to be afraid. So instead of sailing from Corinth, he traveled by land through Achaia and Macedonia and sailing from Philippi to Troas, where his team agreed to rendezvous with Paul. And Paul, called with the heart of a pastor, was concerned for his people. He didn't cry. He didn't quit. He didn't complain. But he pressed on to do God's will and to minister to God's people. Verse 4. Then it says, notice he went to Macedonia, and Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus, Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, we know him, Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So this book's being written by Luke. Luke obviously had stayed with Paul. That's why he's saying they went ahead of us, and these other guys went. Now, what I love about this, he has these people traveling with him. Aristarchus is where we get the word aristocrat. 
And it's a term for somebody who's really wealthy. Secundus was a term that they used for slaves. So they were very, very poor. I love that Paul had a guy who had a bunch of money and a guy who didn't have any money because guys, that stuff doesn't mean anything. It's who we are in Christ is what we have in common. Amen? What is a profit of man if he gains the whole world, loses his own soul? Aristarchus, no doubt, walked away from his riches to follow the Lord, you know, to follow Paul and follow the Lord. And, and we see that this man had been freed from slavery to do the same. So for his trip to, he takes these seven delegates, churches in Macedonia, Asia, and South Galatia, and likely they're each carrying money for their own fellowship to bring to the people in Jerusalem. And the purpose of safety and accountability that the, in the journey, so they went together. And by the way, the same is true for fellowship today. It's a place of safety and a place of accountability. As believers, we become like the people we hang out with. And that's chapter 18. We're going to see that with, uh, we'll see that in a couple weeks. But in chapter 18 of First, uh, First Chronicles, we see how he's being used mildly by the Lord and Jehoshaphat. And then he's going to partner up with the most ungodly king ever, Ahab, whose wife's name is Jezebel. And we're going to see that someone who's walking with the Lord, if they start spending time with the world, things happen. And that's a warning for every one of us as believers. We're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And the way that we can do that, the way we have accountability is hanging out with other believers. Amen? So as Paul is traveling, he's got seven other guys with him. And they're all bringing the finances that have been collected. I have an idea. Paul said, you guys just hand it and you could give it over to the people. Paul didn't have that focus at all in his life. And they're traveling together. And I think it's good. I think we need, we need that. We need fellowship. Amen? We need other believers we can pick up the phone and they'll answer it 24 hours a day. We need men's study, women's study, young adults' Bible study. We need times we can gather together with God's people. And, it, and you know what it does too? When you're hanging out with a bunch of believers, you're less tempted to sin because you're going to be accountable to the other people there. Amen? No one in my work, the whole time I worked there, ever asked me to go to Hooters for lunch. Not one time. Never asked me once. They would all go, and they'd all disappear, and I'd look at the other believer. Hooters, huh? Yeah, okay. Tilted kilt? Okay, that's what I thought. They're not asking us. They know we're not going, right? And the reality is, other believers, right, when, when you've got other believers, that's not even a temptation. You know, the other believers will call you out and keep you accountable. It's a good thing. Then it says, again, it says there, and we sailed to Philippi on the days of unleavened bread, and five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So Paul and Luke sailed from Philippi to Troas to rendezvous with their entourage. They sailed against the wind. A two-day trip took five days. And guys, in our walk with the Lord, we're going to face smooth sailing, but we're also going to face rough seas. Again, as believers, our life may be going really, really well, and everything may seem to be going really smooth, and then all of a sudden trials come. You've heard me say it, a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And you, you know, we're like tea bags, right? Christians, you, you find out what's on the inside when we put us in some hot water, right? It's when we go through the trials of life when we find out how strong our walk really is. And there are people that get blown off by a couple of days delayed or high winds facing them. But the heart of a pastor and the heart of a, a mature believer should not be so. So number one there, he had a concerned heart. He focused on strengthening and encouraging the saints and ministering to the physical needs of the church. He's going great distance, 
and going out of the way to minister to people on the way, and he's going a great distance to minister to people who are hurting in Jerusalem. Secondly, he has a compassionate heart. Look at verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, what day is that? Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. It's Sunday. Now, the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, you thought I taught for a long time. He taught till midnight. Now, here's what I will tell you. Paul is going back through cities where he was once their pastor. Paul is headed to Jerusalem. He's only going to be there for a short amount of time. Now, in those days, in the book of Acts days, they still had a Sabbath on Saturday, so that was usually the only day off that you had. So they would work on Sunday, but the churches would gather often. Now, but here's what happens. These guys have been working all day, but now they hear that Paul's in town. And they go and they want to hear from their pastor and they want him to teach. Now we're going to see in a minute, if you've been to the Middle East, it's hot. And what happens is they usually meet on rooftops or in, on higher rooms with windows open. We're going to see later on in this text that they're holding lamps just to be able to have some light. And Paul's going to teach all night. He's teaching till midnight, but he's going to teach even past that. Now, why is that? And the analogy I would use, some of you don't know who he is, but if Pastor Chuck, who was one of my pastors, right, growing up, if we knew that Pastor Chuck was coming through town and, he, and, he, and we, we probably were never going to see him again, and a bunch of pastors showed up at Calvary Costa Mesa to listen to him teach, I don't think we'd have any problem with him teaching till the next morning. Why? Because this is our pastor. We know his love for the Lord. He's ministered to us in the past, and we would love to hear from him. There's nowhere else I'd rather be than right here. Well, that's how these people are with Paul. Paul's in town for a short amount of time. They get off work, they're exhausted, but they're not too tired to go. And they all gather up and they're listening to their pastor teach them the word of God. He's preaching not only to the masses, but we're going to see in a moment that he cares for the individual. Luke gives us a brief report of a local church service in Troas. And again, a church earlier established by Paul from which he learned something of how they met and worshiped the Lord, considering the elements. Notice, again, the first day of the week. So they began the week with the Lord, and early church met many times during the week. But Sunday, the Lord's Day, was a special time of communion and fellowship. They had the breaking of bread, they had an agape feast. That's where we get the pattern. And so it was a time of fellowship, meeting with the Lord, and again, the Sabbath, the feast, all that was fulfilled in Christ. And now the emphasis was on the teaching of the Word of God. The Word of God is essential for the growth of every believer. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. Verse 8 and 9. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus. Now, when I taught this last time, it was two years ago in Hawaii. And I didn't know I was going to be teaching in the gym after lunch where the AC was broken. So when people eat, what do they get? Tired. And then when it's hot in the room, more tired. And I was teaching this text and I mentioned, hey guys, just saying that I know a lot of you are tired and I know that the AC is broken in the gym and I know we got, you know, 800 guys in here and you're all pastors. I get it. But I'm going to teach a text where a guy was supposed to be listening and it got warm in the room and he fell asleep and he died. 
So I'm just encouraging you guys. You might want to stay awake for the message. Amen. So here's what happens to Eutychus. Look what it says. Who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, I've had a lot of people sleep when I'm teaching. There's a few of you struggling right now. But here's the reality. I've had a lot of people fall asleep when I'm teaching. I've never had anybody die that I know of, right? And so he falls out the window. Now, Paul could have been arrogant. Paul could have said you should have been paying attention. You know, that was, a th- that, was a, that was an amazing message. How did you miss that, right? He doesn't do that. Eutychus' name means fortunate. I'm not looking too fortunate right here. He was a young man, which means somewhere in his 20s to early 30s. He had probably had a long day at work. He's weary. There's carbon monoxide. He's trying to stay awake, and he falls out the window. And again, he fell out the window uh, of his home church, and he died. Now look at verse 10, though. So not only does he preach to the masses, but he has compassion for the individual. And this should be the heart of every pastor. should be somebody who doesn't just have a heart for the masses, but has a passion for the individual. Here's what it says, verse 10. Then Paul went down, fell on him and embracing him and said, do not trouble for his life is in him. Jesus had a fourfold ministry, the three, the 12, the 70, and the crowd. When he spoke to the crowd, he often spoke in parables, speaking to a larger group. Then he had the 70, the the disciples who would follow him. Those are in the upper room later. And he spoke to them another way. But then he had the 12 within that group, you know, the apostles. And then inside of that, he had the three, Peter, James, and John, who he discipled the most out of all the disciples. And my pastor in San Jose used to say, every pastor should be able to be able to minister to the crowd, the 70, the 12, and the three. You should have people that you're pouring your life into, individuals. You should have other groups uh, that are closer to you that you're ministering to them, but you should also be able to engage the crowd as well. And that should be the heart of a pastor. Well, that's, that's Paul's heart. Paul's there to minister to the crowd, but when somebody falls, he doesn't send someone else down to take care of him. He goes, in the middle of his message, goes down himself, lays on this young man and embraces him and no doubt prays for him and says, he's going to be okay. He's going to live. The life has not been taken from him. And that should be the heart, not just of every pastor, but every believer. Amen? We should love people and it should be evident. So he's got a pastor's heart, not only to preach the masses, but to embrace the individual. Verse 11 Then it says there, now when he had come up and broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. So he preached till midnight, but then he hung out till the sun came up. And what did he do? He was ministering to people. Again, I believe pastors should be the first one to get there and the last one to leave. I believe they should be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I believe that, you know, if you're a pastor, everybody should have your cell phone and be able to call you whenever they want. Again, because a pastor is a servant. He doesn't have office hours, right? I mean, that's what a shepherd doesn't just say, well, I'll watch the sheep from nine to five. If the wolves come at 530, they're toast. He doesn't do that, right? And, and again, that's the, heart for a, that's the heart for a pastor. But I do you as believers, we should all be available to minister to people. Compassion brought one who had fallen asleep back into fellowship. Look at verse 12. It says there, and they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted. So here's somebody who had fallen and he's brought back into fellowship. What did, you know, and you know, maybe we haven't seen people die and be resurrected, though I, God can still do that. I prayed for that when we were visiting Mark in the morgue. I, I literally laid on my son and prayed that God would raise him from the dead, and God chose not to, but I asked. 
Because I believe God can. Amen? We have not because we ask not. But I'll tell you what we do see. We see people pretty regularly around here that were dead in their trespasses and sins. They respond to the gospel, and now they're alive in Christ. Amen? And that ultimately is more exciting than someone raising from the dead because now that person's going to have eternal life. Amen? And so praise the Lord when something like that's taking place in a local church and we see Paul's compassion, we see God's miracle, he ministers to Eutychus, he brought great comfort to the whole church. So he has a a concerned heart, a compassionate heart, a heart for not just for the crowd, but for the individual, is willing to minister. And that's why I want to encourage you. The first ministry I did was I taught two and three-year-olds with my wife. Before I was a pastor, we taught the two and three-year-old class every other Sunday for about a year. And then later, I you know, started teaching the youth group with five girls around a table. And, I, and if it had been five girls for the rest of my life, I'd have been fine with it. And guys, here's the reality. When we're faithful where God places us, often God will bring us to other places as well. Amen? It's pretty rare that someone goes from ministering to nobody to ministering to a large... It doesn't happen that way, typically. And I want you to know, it's just a big a privilege to teach five three-year-olds... It should be. We should be just as prepared as if we were teaching Dodger Stadium filled with people. Amen? Are, those, are all five of those little three-year-olds precious to Jesus? What's the answer? See, everything we do, we should do as unto the Lord and with a heart of compassion. Notice he has a Christ-centered heart. And look at verse 13. Then, he went up on the sh- then we went ahead on the ship and sailed to Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when, we, when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilian. Now, why would he send... Now, he's been up all night ministering to people. He's on no sleep. Why would he not get on a ship where he can rest? It's a 25-mile trip on a boat, which back then would take some time. Why would he spend hours walking instead of being on a boat napping? Anybody have any thoughts? Divine appointments, potentially, for sure. Here's why I think. I think that's part of it. I think it's this is why. Because he wanted to spend some alone time with the Lord. Because I believe that he knew that before him were going to be more opportunities, and he knew that he couldn't minister for the Lord if he didn't spend time with the Lord. And so he made spending time one-on-one with the Lord a priority, even over sleep. There's a good example for all of us. Amen? Well, I'd get up and I can't spend time with the Lord because you know, I, got, I got to get up early for work. Okay, but you were watching Netflix till 11 last night, amen, or whatever else it is that you were doing that zapped your time in the evening so you don't have time for the Lord in the morning. Just make God a priority. So he's walking. Pick me up on the other side, guys. Intimate time fellowship with the Lord. And again, Paul originally hoped to be in Jerusalem uh, by Passover, but that's not going to happen. But blessed are the flexible, amen? Be, be, be ready for whatever God wants to do with you. You may have plans, and God may have another plan. Verse 17. Verse 16. So, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so he had not have time to spend, for, so he not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So, originally, he wanted to get there by Passover. How many days from Passover to Pentecost? How many? What does penta mean? 50. Okay. So Passover to Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus died on the cross. 
Then came, when did Jesus die? When was it? It was Passover, right? Right? They were celebrating Passover when Jesus was crucified. And then 50 days, again, Pentecost was pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So he had hoped to be there, and now he's hoping to be there by 50 days later. But at the same time, he's not going to miss the divine appointments along the way. And too often we're so caught up again in getting where we think we're going that we're missing the divine appointments that happen every day in our lives. And Paul's being faithful to that. Then it says there in verse, so that's a Christ-centered heart. He makes spending time with the Lord a priority of his life and ministering to the Lord that we might minister for the Lord. And then finally, a pastor's heart. We'll see how many of these we get through. So it says here in verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, you've heard me talk about this a lot if you've been going here any length of time, but every time I get to this word, I like to explain it. Because elder and pastor and bishop, the world has, uh, especially in our country, well, all over the world, they've ruined it because they make a bishop a person who is a chess piece, but also oversees, you know, oversees a bunch of churches, and they call that person a bishop because bishop means overseer. And then they have a pastor who they believe is the head of a local church, and then the elders are the people that serve alongside the pastor. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Bishop, pastor, and elder is all the same guy in the Bible. We're going to see these same guys referred to as elders here, referred to as bishops, and we get to verse 28. Same guys. They're all the pa- So here, a bishop is who he is. He oversees people. Pastor is what he does. What does he do? He ministers to people. And an elder is who he is. He's spiritually mature. So it's all talking about the same guy. And so he's this. So what I love about you know why I taught this at that pastor's uh, conference? Because this is the first ever pastor's conference ever that's going to take place starting after this verse. Because what does he do? He had been in Ephesus and been the pastor there for three years. He's now been traveling for many months. He sails by Ephesus on the way to Jerusalem after visiting all these churches. And he says, hey, I want the elders from the church I used to pastor to come and meet me. So they had to travel a great distance, drop everything they're doing to come spend time with Paul, their fellow laborer, and they were excited to come spend time with him. So for this, now this, I would see things like this. And then I remember when I would go to India, I used to, I went every year for seven years and I would teach anywhere from 75 to like a thousand pastors. And these guys would walk. I would find out in talking to them, a lot of them were barefooted and I would get there and they look, you know, and I would talk to them like, oh, I had to walk four days to get here. I'm like, wow. And they're like, yeah, because, you know, I'm a new pastor and I heard you're going to teach us how to study and teach the Bible and I wasn't going to miss it. So I walked four days to get here. And then I'm like, and then they're telling me, well, I can learn a lot from you. I'm like, no, I think I can learn a lot from you. Can I get an amen to that? We get upset. We got to drive. Oh, we're moving from Calabasas to Thousand Oaks. I got to drive eight more miles in my air-conditioned car. I don't think so. You know what I mean? You guys are walking four days. But here's the point: that these guys get the word, and they're going to walk from Ephesus or travel from Ephesus, and it's going to take them time, and they're going to be willing to do it because they're hungry again for the Lord, and they're hungry to see their brother in the faith. So first he has a heart to disciple others. He could have just blown by. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He hasn't seen these guys in months. He could have just kept going, but his heart was, you know what? I want to spend time with them. I want to pour into their lives. So a pastor's heart is a heart to disciple others. He also has a heart to lead by example. Notice what it says there. When they had come to him, he said to them, 
You know me from the first day I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you. Now, this is humbling to me, and it would be hard to even say these words. So he's meeting with the elders, the pastors of the church he used to pastor, and he doesn't teach them how to study the Bible, though that's important. He doesn't teach them how to plant the church. He doesn't teach them finances. You know what he says? He's saying, follow my example. Follow my example. He had lived in such a way that he could tell these other believers to live the way he lived. Now, I love in the Bible when it says, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm a little more comfortable with that. How about you? If I'm following Jesus, you can follow me because I'm following him. But he's letting them know and he's, he's encouraging them and telling them that he, you know, he has a heart to lead by example. And again, as believers, we should be an example for the world to see what believers are like. And we've got, are there a lot of ungodly Christian examples? What's the answer? A lot of Christians who are hypocrites. What's the answer? Self-righteous, arrogant. So we as believers, all the more should represent Christ well. Quick story. When my wife and I first, when I first became a, a youth pastor, I was in my 20s in Lancaster. And I love Mexican food. I could eat Mexican food every day. So I'm, I'm sure there's Mexican food in heaven. That's why I said there's tacos there. It's got to be. But here's the thing. I love Mexican food. Well, my wife and I had a Mexican restaurant near our house, and we had little kids, and we didn't get out very often. But every once in a while, one of the youth group kids would come watch our kids, and we'd go get Mexican food. And my wife got a, like a virgin daiquiri, or one or the other, but it had nothing, no alcohol in it. We don't drink alcohol. No alcohol in it. And I had just a regular Coke, but it was in a glass that could have looked like it had a rum and Coke or something. And so later, some people came up to me at church and said, oh, we were surprised to see that you and your wife drink alcohol, but we think that, you know, we thought we, maybe we shouldn't drink it anymore, but if you guys are drinking it. So guess who doesn't get any virgin anything anymore? That was 35 years ago. We don't do that because you don't even want to have the appearance of something that could stumble somebody. Amen? And the point is, we want to lead by example, by the way that we live our lives that so people can look at. We don't want to, look, we don't want to stumble somebody. Paul said, if my eating meat's going to stumble my brother, I won't eat meat. If there's something I'm going to do that's going to stumble someone else, I can forgo that for the sake of my brother. Amen? So he has a heart to lead by example. Then it says there in verse 18, it said that when they came to him, and again, one of the greatest abilities in the kingdom is availability. You know, there's 15 qualifications for a pastor. 14 speak of character, one speaks of gifting. We focus on the gifting, but these were guys who were available. When, when there was a call for them to come, they went. When there was an opportunity to, 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 to go and be taught and filled spiritually, they wanted to be there. You know, it's a get-to, not a have-to, to serve the Lord. Again, these guys had jobs and responsibilities, but when God called, when the Lord used him, they came. And he's telling them to imitate me, and that's what it says. And Paul, again, we know one of the qualifications of a pastor is blameless. It doesn't mean sinless, or there'd be no pastors. Amen? But blameless literally means without accusation from the outside. It literally means there's nothing to hold on to. They don't say, oh, that pastor, oh, he's the drunkard, or he's the, he's the guy that's a womanizer, or he's the guy that's angry all the time, or that's the guy that's all about money, or whatever. And anybody who's serving in a church and leadership role should be blameless. Again, not sinless, not perfect, but somebody there's nothing to lay hold of. He's not known by anything other than the fact that he loves the Lord, and again, he may have trials and difficulties in his life. But again, 
He didn't say to them, do as I say. He said, you can follow my example, and that should be the heart of all of us. By the way, if you're going to a church and you don't want to follow the example that the pastor sets, you probably ought to find another church. Amen? If his example is a poor example, that's not okay. Thirdly, he's got a humble heart. So his motive for ministry is serving the Lord, and his manner of ministry is serving in humility. Look what it says there in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. You know, when I think of Paul, I don't think of him crying. Because he's always portrayed just to be this, like, spiritual giant, isn't he? Like, whenever you see him, like, you know, he's just this guy that seems like he could run through brick walls for Jesus. But the reality is, like all of us, Paul had times where he was in tears. Paul had times where he was hurting. And as believers, we're all going to go through that too. Amen? And you know what? Jesus wept. Amen? And he knew heartbreak. And I also think for a pastor and even for believers, for us to be effective, it's hard to minister to someone else if you've never been through heartbreak yourself. It's hard, to, it's hard to minister to somebody else if you haven't been through trials of life. But that's, here's the good news. We've all been there. Amen? So that means we all can be used by the Lord. But we need to have a heart of humility because he says, I serving the Lord with all humility and many tears and trials. Again, use mightily, suffer greatly. We know Paul's picture, right? Day and night in the deep, beatings often. You know, you go through that whole list of all these trials he's been through in his life, and yet he remained faithful. And it's easy for us to read the list, but Paul lived it. And as believers, the people that I love to get counseling from the most and here teach the Bible the most, most of the ones that I love the most have suffered the most. I talk about John Corson all the time. His wife got killed in a car accident. About 15 years later, his daughter got killed in a car accident. Then his son got, had, got a brain tumor. That brother's been through it. And he's never wavered. I'm not saying he doesn't have tough times because he does. I, I, I got to know him pretty well because he met his wife in Santa Cruz and he would come down and do conferences for us. And I have, I've had meals with him. And you know what? And that brother just was inspiring. He has a book called uh, A Future and a Hope that I give to everybody who grieves. I need to buy more copies because more people around me are grieving. But after my son died, I read it again. And you know what? Somebody who's gone through difficulty and keeps serving Jesus, doesn't that encourage you? Amen? Doesn't that make you think, well, look, he, he can do it or she can do it. I can do it. God's, God helped them. God can help me. Amen? Well, that's Paul. Paul's been that example for them. And he's a man of humility. He takes no credit for what God has done. He's also got a heart for the lost. Look at verse 20 and 21. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews, also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, these are great two verses right here. I held nothing back. I didn't hold anything back. I gave you everything. I, I held nothing back. I taught the truth. So when I was in Santa Cruz, a friend of mine he pastored the largest church in town, and we, we had one of the larger ones. And he and I would spend time together because our boys went to the same Christian school. They played sports together, and we'd sit in the stands and talk often. And he would tell me that I never want to offend anybody in the sanctuary. 
He said, I want to, I want to make everybody feel welcome there, and I, want to, I don't want to ever offend anybody, so they'll just keep coming, and then hopefully we can get them into like the men's study and the women's study, then they'll hear the gospel, and then they can get saved. But if I offend them in the sanctuary, they'll never come back. And I said, so you must never talk about the cross then, because the cross of Christ is a stone of offense. Amen? He was holding back, because he was afraid of offending people. I love you guys enough, I will never hold back. Why? Because we need to teach the whole counsel of God and not, you know, skip over the parts that are tough. Amen? Nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. And that's what he's saying. He's like, look, I feel nothing back from you guys. I, I, and I've taught publicly from, and from house to house. I've taught, he's taught in arenas filled with people, and he went door to door sharing Jesus with people. Guys, as believers, again, that should be our heart and that should be the heart of every pastor. But what did he preach? Seven steps to financial freedom. No, it doesn't say that. He preached repentance toward God. Repentance toward God. He didn't water down the gospel to fit the culture. Remember, these were the guys that were with him in Ephesus, and they had the goddess Diana, and they were worshiping these idols, and they had this huge temple in town. And he said, I didn't hold anything back. I spoke about it. It was idolatry. It was godless. And again, there needed to be repentance. He was telling people to repent from following their false gods to follow the true and living God. We know what the word repentance means. It means to change your mind, to change your heart. You know, it's a, it, it, metanoia, to turn around. I was going this direction, and I've changed my mind. I'm turning around, and I'm surrendering my life to the Lord. You know, people will tell me, well, I don't like, you know, hellfire and brimstone churches that preach repentance. Well, then you don't like Jesus, because he preached repentance. Amen? All the apostles preached repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. Repent means I'm walking off a cliff to my sure eternal damnation, and I'm turning around to surrender to my, my life to the one who went to the cross to redeem me and save me and give me eternal life. That sounds like a U-turn we all ought to want to make. Can I get an amen to that? And so he preached repentance. He preached the truth. He was unashamed of the gospel. He also had a heart that was bound and led by the Holy Spirit. Notice he says there in verse 22 and 23, he says, and see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. As Paul was getting closer to Jerusalem, all the other believers were like, bro, when you get there, they're going to chain you up, man. They're going to they're torture you. You're probably going to die. And he just kept going anyway, because God told him to go. So he was a man who knew what was coming. He wasn't excited about it, but he was fearless at the same time because he trusted the Lord, because he was being led by the Holy Spirit. We're not led by our circumstances. We shouldn't be led by what's easy, because here's the reality. Doing what is right is rarely easy, and doing what is easy is rarely right. Amen? What God calls you to do is usually going to be difficult. There's going to be trials in the way, because if God's going to use you, you're going to have to go through some some roadblocks put up by the enemy who knows that God's using you. Amen? You know how you get Satan to leave you alone? Just go live like the world. He won't waste any time with you. If he can't destroy you, he'll distract you. If he can render you ineffective for the kingdom of God. But you know what? I guarantee you Satan knew who Paul was, and he did everything he could to shut that brother down, and he was led by the Holy Spirit, and he was not going 
to waver. He was bound to go to Jerusalem, even though the danger and potential death awaited him. And again, it's easy to be discouraged when we focus on trials and tribulations and tears and circumstances. Why wasn't Paul? He'd already been stoned and scourged and beaten and shipwrecked. He'd been hungry. Just to throw it in and say that's enough would be easy. But he didn't because he had a higher calling in any eternal perspective. Now, here's one of my life's verses. I love this verse. This is an amazing verse. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I know that beatings await me, scourgings await me, death potentially awaits me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, but that I might finish my race with joy. Why? Because I know the ministry that waits before me, and I want to be faithful to it. And that's his heart. And you know what? That ought to be the heart of every believer, and that absolutely should be the heart of every pastor. Amen? If he's a guy that's going to get blown off track when they tell you you can't have church anymore or whatever else comes along, then that's a guy that's really not being faithful to the calling God has placed upon his life. Paul knew his calling. He knew it. This is what I was called to do. The Bible says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross is a picture of dying to self. Amen? If you want to serve God, you have to die to yourself. It can't be about your will or your wants. It needs to be about his will, because his will and his way is better than your will and your way. Amen? And following him is a get-to, and there's nothing more joyful than that. And Paul understood that. Paul's life was no longer his own. It had been purchased with a price. How big was the price that Jesus paid for your life? He died on the cross. He paid a heavy price for your life. And you know what? Because he was willing to do that for us, we should be willing to live for him. He's willing to die for us. You want to live for him? Amen? And Paul understood that. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. When we know that God has called you, the struggles are his, not yours. When you're doing what God has called you to do, even in the midst of difficulty, there's a deep joy. There's a get to, not a have to. When my coworkers were asking me this last week, they're like, well, you know, we know you're a pastor, bro, but you've always done this at the same time. And you, bro, you make a lot of money, man. And you're going to walk away from all that money to go serve at a church full time. And, and, and they're like, I don't, I don't get, I said, you're right. You don't get it. Let me tell you why. There's nothing, if my son had asked me this, Mark asked me this right before I taught in Hawaii and I shared it in the message in Hawaii. He said, dad, if, and we always had long talks. He goes, dad, if you could do anything, if you could be president of the United States, quarterback of the 49ers, right? If you could, if you could have anything, be any, live anywhere and do anything at all, what would you do? And I said, I would be right where I am doing exactly what I'm doing right now because there's no place in the world I'd rather be because I know this is exactly where God wants me to be. And I want to tell you something, there's nothing more joyful than knowing you're where God wants you to be doing what God wants you to be doing. Amen? It's a get-to. I get asked all the time to go speak other places. I say almost always no, because I'd rather be here with you than anywhere else, because you guys are my family. Amen? And my heart would be whatever God's called you to do, that God would give you that same joy that I get to do this for Jesus. And it's the best thing ever that I get to do this. He gifts us, he uses us, and then he rewards us for us being faithful to do what he gave us and called us to do and equipped us to do. What a great and awesome God we serve. Amen? 
It's a get to. It's not a have to. By the way, if you're serving here and you feel like it's a have to, please stop. We'll get a get to to take your place. Amen? We don't want that. Let's finish. And indeed, I now, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now, he lets them all know, and you can hear, I can, I, when, I read, when I read the Bible, I kind of put myself in the place of the people listening. And I imagine if we were sitting there with Pastor Chuck or Pastor Don McClure, someone who I, I view my pastor, and he looks at him in the eye and he says, guys, I'm never going to see you again. And I just imagine the tears welling up in the eyes of these guys who love their pastor so much. I'm never going to see you guys again. And they're like, no. We're going to see them grip him and hanging on to him. And then he says to them, look, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now, what makes him innocent of the blood of all men? Here's another one of my favorite Bible verses. And that's why I love this chapter so much. There's several of them in this chapter. Look what it says. Verse 27, underline your Bible. For I have not shunned to declare to you the what? Whole counsel of God. I've not failed to declare to you to teach the entire Bible, to teach the whole counsel of God. Nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. Amen? We don't skip over books. We teach all of it. You know what to teach the whole Bible from beginning to end takes about 20 years? There's de- and you know what it means? It means you need to be, you need to be con- convicted to do it. You need to be faithful to it. You need not to skip over any of the tough stuff. You, you need to teach all of it. And when you teach verse by verse of the Bible, you teach in proportion to the way God gave it to us. You don't sit there and teach about giving every week because you want to build a big building and fly a jet. Amen? You don't pick verses that you want to just use to build up yourself. When you teach the whole Bible, you teach in proportion to the way God gave it to us. So we talk about the sovereignty of God when the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God. We talk about the free will of man when it talks about the free will of man. We talk about giving when the Bible teaches giving. Amen? Amen. And we teach all of it. And he says to them, I'm, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now, when I get done with Revelation, I'll be halfway innocent of the blood of all men because I'll have covered the New Testament. Amen? But I have such a passion to teach the whole counsel of God. And we should all have the passion to read it and to study it and to know it. Amen? There's no... Do you know that Ruth is as inspired as Romans? And Leviticus is as inspired as Luke? That every book in the Bible is in the Bible for a reason? They're all important. Amen? People ask me, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I said, why don't you ask me which one's my favorite grandchild? I love them all. I have 66 favorite books, amen? And I might, the one that's most favorite is the one I'm teaching right now until I start teaching the next one, amen? Because the Bible's amazing, and I just love his heart is that, look, this is what makes me innocent. I've taught the whole counsel of God. I love that. Let me finish. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's going to be the last verse. So here, I love this. Here's what he says. He's talking to the pastors that are taking his place. He was the pastor of the church. They were co-laborers with him. They're never going to see him again. He's sending them back to the church. And then this is what he says to them. Let me read it again. This is powerful. Take heed to yourselves and to the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. When I read this verse, when I'm by myself, I weep. Here's why. What he's saying to the pastors is, you know those people that God is allowing you to minister to? 
he paid for them with his own blood. They're so precious to him that he'd rather die than live without them. His blood was shed for them, and he wants you to oversee them. He wants you to make sure they're fed. We're not going to read it, but if you go on the next, few next verses, he talks about, and he, he, he wants you to keep the wolves away from them and the false teachers from coming into the church. And so this is what you've been called to do, and I want you to know how important these people are. Jesus paid for them with his own blood, and so now you need to minister to them, recognizing that's what Jesus did for them. Is that powerful or what? That's a picture. That's the exhortation. Now you know why I teach this at pastor's conferences, because I'm talking to a room full of guys just like me, and I want to encourage and exhort them that this is the calling God has placed upon our lives. So I know it wasn't planned for tonight, but God's in control. This is a God dot. Can I get any amen to that? So a pastor's heart, lessons learned from the life of the Apostle Paul. First, have a concerned heart to encourage the saints, focus on strengthening them, a compassionate heart, preaching to the masses, caring for the individual. Again, a pastor who's not willing to stop what he's doing to minister to one person doesn't get it. And I think that's true for us as believers. Amen. We, you know, we can walk by the individual looking for something greater to do. Every person is precious to Jesus. A Christ-centered heart, intimate fellowship with the Lord. How's your walk with the Lord? You're as close to God as you want to be. If you want to be used mildly by the Lord, spend more time with the Lord. And then a pastor's heart, a heart to disciple others, a heart to lead by example, a humble heart, a heart for the lost, a heart that is led by the Holy Spirit, a heart focused on eternity, a heart for God's Word, and a shepherd's heart. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We count it a privilege to be your sons and daughters adopted into your family. And Lord, I thank you for the absolute privilege of being able to minister and serve these precious people in this room, those that are watching on live stream, those that we'll see on Sunday, those that hear us on the radio. And Lord, it's a get to, not a have to. There's no greater joy than walking in the center of your will. And I pray for everyone here tonight. Maybe some have been sitting on the sidelines for a long time. And you're stirring them up with whatever you've called them to do. And I pray, Lord, that it would be a get-to, not a have-to. That they would be stirred up to respond to whatever ministry you're calling them to. It may not even be here in this church. It may be in their neighborhood or in their workplace. But Lord, just use them mightily. Be glorified. Lord, we know this is a glimpse of heaven. But heaven's way better. And we cannot wait to be in your presence forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.